listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Everyone else, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you are turning there, I have a question for you this morning. Do any of you out here have just a spirit inside of you of an inner critic? Any, anyone, anyone out there? Yeah, yeah, okay, all right, good. We, we realize this. Um, do you just get joy out of, you know, watching a TV show and mentally ripping it to shreds? We had a long car, car ride uh, over to the men's retreat, and I was talking with Dan and Quentin. We had, we had fun doing a little bit of that. Um, maybe it's for you, it's reading a book or watching a sports team play, and you just love analyzing all the things that went wrong and how it should have been better, right? Or that guy missed this rebound, he should have made that play. And yeah, like, it's easy to fall into that. Uh, maybe you find humor almost in picking apart the absurd things in life, right? And we have a large body of content when it talks about absurd things in life to, uh, to pick holes at and to laugh at and have fun with. Well, I know I certainly do. There's a place for that in life. But like anything, it can go too far, right? And it can suck the joy out of your soul. We've been touching a little bit on that recently here in 1 Thessalonians. But if, if you like to shoot holes through the inconsistencies, welcome to the club, for one thing. Also, this is going to be a very valuable message for you today. On the other hand, if you get tired of people, people that overanalyze things and who, who are wound up too tight and constantly finding something to overanalyze, well, you're also really going to like this message, but you're not off the hook either. Uh, because there's some very crucial things in here for you as well. This is our second to last message from our series in 1 Thessalonians. And the Apostle Paul has been writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica. And I tell you the truth, Paul isn't really winding anything down here. This isn't coming to a nice, soft, easy conclusion. It's more like he is walking off with a bang. And I know baseball season is around the corner. So you could say here, he's like rounding the bases for like an inside the park home run right now. Like if, if you're on the edge of your seat, is he going to make it as he's running around these bases? Like that's kind of the way Paul is ending this entire letter. So for two weeks, we have been seeing how to build one another up in love. If you've been with us during this series, you will recall that at the very end of Paul's conversation on the end times in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, he said this. Take a look at it with me in your text. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. There's the key phrase, the big takeaway. Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. That's what he wants for the church at Thessalonica. That's what he wants for this church. He wants that for all of us as well. And from there, Paul is parlaying that conversation piece into... If you, if, if you recall, recall the message that Lee preached in verses 12 through 15, okay? You can summarize it by honoring your leaders and helping those who struggle. Like, how are we to build one another up? How, how are we as a church to have unity, to, to do what we're called to do? Well, there's a first, first step. Honor your leaders. Help those who, who are struggling. And then he takes... It even a step further with you want a healthy church culture that's going to be thriving and continuing to blossom. Well, there's two more elements for that to happen. And, uh, and you look at verses 16 through 18, and this is where we took one step further last week on the personal side. This gets really personal. We go from like a more broad category of the church body to your own heart. Where is that at? Do you want God's will for your life? Is that what you really desire? Because Paul spells it out. God's will for you. Remember this last week? Rejoice always, 
pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. That may sound a little unrealistic. And if that sounds a little unrealistic to you, just go back and listen to last week's message. <laughs> I've had a lot of conversations about that all week after preaching on it with, with different friends here in this church. It's a very challenging message, and there's a lot there. But as Paul is putting a wrap on this letter, he's not slowing down on his application at the end. He is going out swinging. There's like a bass knock here. There's a stand-up double followed by a triple off the wall and another bass hit. I mean, the hits just keep coming at us, all this application in a very short, compact way. So in that same spirit of personal edification for the greater good of the church body, to build one another up, to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances, here is... The next layer of that, it even goes another layer deeper with Paul's specific applications. And he's laying down a lot of things here. A lot of the stuff he said, he's probably already taught them when he visited the church. And now he's just cramming it all in as the end as a reminder. Oh yeah, one more time for good measure. Remember to do this. So pick it up with me in verse 19 and let's see what he says. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I'm calling today's message, Fanning the Flame. The true church is a place where God's spirit moves freely. The Holy Spirit is often referred to in scripture as a fire. And right now, in this, at this point in this letter, Paul is fired up. Like I said, he's going down swinging. And uh, how do you, though, quench fire? How would you quench fire? Simple question, right? Throwing water on it. You put a damn blanket on it. Getting on your high horse, being critical and looking down on others. Remember what I talked about at the very beginning? That spirit, that inner critique spirit. When you look down on others that don't do it the way you think they should, they're not doing it exactly like you want it to be done, and you look down on them, that is the same thing as throwing a wet blanket over the spirit. You could say quenching the spirit. And sadly, this was a warning that was necessary then, and it is just as relevant today. Some of us need a spark. Some of us are dry. We're not as on fire for God's will and God's ways as, as you should be, maybe even as you once were at, uh, at another time in your life. And you look at others, and there's a little bit of pride that kicks in. Look at them. Look at what they're not doing that I'm doing. You get very dry. That's, that's called quenching the spirit. Now, of course, that cuts both ways. That, that spirit of pride comes in for the more conservative, traditional Christian, just like it does from the, the Christian who's like in the more modern context of I have liberty, I have freedom, I have grace. Like they're more focused on that. Both those group of people, because we have a sin nature, can look down on the other in pride. And then for others of us, we've let our own dryness of heart focus on the weaknesses and even sometimes the outright problems of others to the point where we're looking more at them than we are at what Jesus Christ has done for us. And this is what Paul has to say. Number one, point number one today is quench not the spirit. Now, there's a lot packed into that one phrase. Like I said, Paul had to have done a lot of teaching on this. This is his parting reminder to the church, but we are going to unpack this phrase today because a lot of people do throw water on the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's a problem. Here's three ways that they do it. This, you're not going to see this in your text. You're going to see this from the greater text of the New Testament. So like I said, let's, let's work through some of these things. Because this is very important that we quench not the Spirit. This is what happens. Number one, people deny the validity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's a way to quench the Spirit. Secondly, by replacing the work of the Spirit with your own actions. That's a big problem. We're going to get into that. 
Thirdly, by playing the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. You play the role of the Holy Spirit in someone else's journey, in their own walk. And you break down the freedom that we have in Christ where we walk in the pasture as, as the Spirit leads the individual. And then you turn it into a whole big list of do's and don'ts and checkboxes. And you're telling the other person what they should be doing. Rather than just letting them open up the word of God, listen to the Lord, and have the Spirit lead them. All of those things, all three of those things quench the Spirit. So Paul does leave us with a lot to interpret from this line. But I want to get into some scripture to show you where he's coming from. First of all, though, please notice the capital S for spirit in this text. This is a great proof text to show the personhood of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just a power or a force or an essence. In some religions, I mean, you take Islam, for example, Allah is an impersonal force. There's, there's no personal relationship. It's based off of fear and control. The whole religion is, right? The Holy Spirit is a person who indwells you, who we can know, who we can feel, and we can sense his presence, right? He leads us. He, he convicts us. So this isn't quench not the force. It's don't quench the spirit. Galatians 3 teaches that every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Spirit not by works of the law, but by faith. That's Galatians 3. And then it goes on to say that you grow into maturity not through works of the flesh, but by walking in the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 is another very important passage on the Holy Spirit. It says that at the moment of conversion... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This isn't dependent on baptism or anything else. It's when you confess your sin and in your heart you repent and believe in Jesus Christ by faith, you are gifted the Holy Spirit. Every single believer in this room is given the gift of the Holy Spirit that way. Amen? Amen. God the Holy Spirit indwells you. And the New Testament letters are full of references to the gifts of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Peter tells us this. Holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the Word of God. And what I find fascinating about the Holy Spirit, when you think about that, that truth, is the humility of the third person of the Trinity. That's what we see from Scripture. The Holy Spirit in the Word of God always, always, always exalts Jesus Christ and honors the Father. The Holy Spirit is always in the background all throughout, throughout the entire Bible. But the Holy Spirit doesn't insert itself in the front of the line, always exalts Christ. Just read Scripture. Placing God the Father as supreme and sovereign, highlighting the work of Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit's MO. And the written word is never going to be in contradiction with the living word of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit exalts Jesus Christ 100% of the time. And if you're thinking, well, David, where's your chapter and verse on that? I'm telling you, it's the, it's the, it's the entire New Testament. It's the entire Bible. This is a point that's taken systematically studying all of Scripture. The Holy Spirit never inserts itself as the main focus. The emphasis is always pointed to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, in the background, convicts John 16. The Holy Spirit strengthens and empowers us, Ephesians 3. The Holy Spirit counsels and guides us, John 14, John 16. The Holy Spirit fills us, Ephesians 5. I mean, we could go on all day to all the work of the Spirit. The Spirit transforms us in this process of sanctification in Romans 8. Don't quench that. Seek to be open to the working of the Holy Spirit. But here's what can happen, okay? Christians can elevate the spirit and their, their experience and their emotions and their feelings that they get with the Holy Spirit and their time with him. They can 
elevate to that to the point that the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of God the Father is overshadowed. And I hate it when I see this happen, but it, it definitely happens to the point where we diminish the authority of God's word because I feel this way or I, I feel the spirit leading me this way. That's never, the, the spirit, again, the written word is never going to be in contradiction with the living word. That's never going to happen. So what is going on there? Well, people are getting in the way. There are good people who love God and they get so caught up in the spiritual high and in the spiritual gifts that the seatbelt comes off and the hubris of the old nature and the pride of, of humans enters the equation and then you get some good old-fashioned FOMO, fear of missing out, that, that enters the situation, the scene. And when this happens, it's the same thing that happened in the New Testament church at Corinth where you have abuse of spiritual gifts and you have people getting prideful and you have things getting blown out of proportion, out of control. People get turned off. People get confused. And then people have a tendency to react, right? And then you see the second part, denying the validity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's a reaction to something that was taken too far. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. We're going to get into this. Uh, but before we do, let me tell you a quick story to expl just explain this, to personalize this, okay? Uh, I already mentioned we had a great men's, men's retreat, awesome time just hearing the word of God preached, um, playing three-on-three three basketball against professionals from Europe, like, you know, almost beating them, but then having windmill dunks thrown down on us. Like, you know, it, it was a great time. Uh, so much to say about that. But one of, the, one of the things I enjoy is just hanging out with the guys and talking, right? Um, me and Ryan were driving back yesterday afternoon, and we started talking about our first cars. And, you know, I was in Ryan's car, and I was explaining my, my first Pontiac Grand Am that I dated Julian. I love that car. It blew up one day. Uh, it was really sad when the engine died on that car. Around the exact same time, I had just bought a Subaru Outback. And this is when we lived in Colorado. Uh, Julie's parents lived in Michigan. Like, everybody loved Subaru Outbacks in Colorado. I mean, that was the car. People raved about them. I'm like, oh, man, I got to get a Subaru Outback. It, it'll go 280,000 miles before I need to do anything to this car, right? And so in, and they were expensive in Colorado, but I visited my, my in-laws for Christmas, and I saw this Subaru Outback on the lot in Michigan, and it was like $6,000. I was like, this is a great deal. Like, so long story short, I buy this car. I didn't even have enough money to buy it at the time. We were newly married, like all these bills. Like, I borrowed some money from my father-in-law, get this car. I, uh, I fly out there, and I'm driving the car back to Colorado. 75 miles down the road, the engine blows. Smoke coming up. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Turn it. I, I call my, my father-in-law. Like, I stay at their house for a couple more nights. Um, when it's all said and done, it was like another eight grand to repair the engine. Waited for like two months for them to repair this car. Finally get it at, back out to Colorado. And uh, a week later, the engine still has problems. <laughs> I was paying off my father-in-law for like two years of just interest-free on, on that car that I bought for $6,000. Then I owed $14,000 on it. And didn't even have the car, but we traded both cars in, and we got our Nissan Rogue, the one that you see me driving now. Like, there's how we got the Rogue. <laughs> All that to say, that Subaru was terrible. I hate that Subaru. <laughs> I, I will never buy a Subaru again. I have a really bad distaste in my mouth for Subarus. I know some of you may like Subaru. I mean, some people just like, they, that's, that's their car, right? I'm offending you right now. For me, I'm sorry. I had a really bad experience with a lemon, and I will never, ever buy a Subaru ever again. Do you see how you can get, you can have a bad experience with something and have a bad taste in your mouth about something to the point where you want to just write it off completely? You see how that works? Do you have a Subaru in your life? Is, like, do you have something? It's, it's something like that in your own life? Because I certainly do. This can happen when people experience an out-of-control, 
taking it way off, off the road, off the guardrails, into the ditch, experience with the gifts of the Spirit. They can get a bad taste in their mouth about it, and they can deny the validity of the Spirit. We have to be on guard for that. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next point because this is where the text is taking us. But in 1 Corinthians 14, we get, where, we get Paul laying down the ground rules for the gifts of the Spirit for this very reason. It's a powerful thing that can, be, that can, that can get out of control. It can. Um, and so when you allow human pride to wash out the simplicity of daily surrender and to, and to have humans inserting themselves in that place that diminishes the work of Jesus Christ, like, you have a problem. So people can quench the Spirit also, number two, by replacing the work of the Spirit with their own actions. Or you could say turning their faith into a performance. And this is a really, like, like, this, this whole sermon, you can tell like, just by where we're at here. I mean, this is a lesson to the church. These are instructions to the church, right? <laughs> so, so hang with me on this. But this is important stuff that we get right. But the spirit of legalism that resides in the fleshly human heart wants to please God through our own good works. That's a good desire taken the wrong, to the wrong direction, Right? It's this mindset. You probably wouldn't say this out loud, but it's in your heart where people can fall into this trap. I sacrificed for God. I obeyed him when other people didn't. I did all of this for God so he would be happy for me, with me and he would bless me. That line of thinking is cancerous. It's very dangerous and it will, it will tear you apart to the point that you will end up tearing other people down because you will end up very disappointed in life if that's your mindset. A person who replaced the work of the Spirit with their own good works is the person who doesn't pray without ceasing. They aren't taking the time to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. They are a go, 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 act first, ask questions later kind of person, and that's not great. That's going to lead to problems. So for all of you driven, achiever-type people, of which I am one of them, okay, I'm talking to myself here, I want to make decisions fast. I like to keep things moving, even if that means I have to drag some people along with me. I mean, Julie and I have had this conversation recently. Like, it's something that I have to work on, and I was also challenged by it in the men's retreat. Like, if you feel like you're, you're pulling someone along because we got to charge forward and do this, there's a very good chance you need to take a deep breath, pause, and say, am I letting the Spirit lead this situation, or am I just doing this in my own strength? If your personality is wired that way, it's very easy to let that, that mindset drift into your own spiritual walk. And it's dangerous because it doesn't matter what your capacity is. If you were doing it out of your own strength, eventually you're going to hit a wall and crash. And as Paul said again to the Corinthians, he's like, when we do things in our own strength, in the end, it's not going to matter for eternity. Of course, God's still going to use it. God's still going to find a way to, to bring good out of that. But it will be wood, hay, and stubble when it comes to eternal reward. It will burn up and it is empty. So don't live the Christian life out of your own willpower and strength. Everybody has different capacities, some people more than others, but we have to be led of the Spirit and do it through His strength, following His lead, being patient, be, doing all things in prayer, right? Pray without ceasing. And there's one other huge way that people quench the Spirit but it's not as obvious as these other two. And it's playing the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. There's a lot we could say about this one. For the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving. But I want to be honest with you here. Churches can do this. Leaders can do this. Parachurch organizations can do this. Christian scholastic institutions can do this. I've experienced this firsthand. 
The Christian school is so fearful that you're going to make a mistake that they create all these rules around you to suffocate that person and basically play the role, not even just of their parent, but they're playing the role of the Holy Spirit. Don't do this. You can't listen to this. You can't go here. Like how is, I mean, now there is a place for rules, right? In, in, a, in an institution, of course there is. Um, every every society, societal institution has rules. <laughs> it's not a bad thing in and of itself. But if you are as a leader over people, making decisions for them, you gotta be careful that you're not the one who's playing the role of the Holy Spirit. They need to be convicted themselves. In their own personal walk with Jesus Christ, they need to be led by the Spirit. And we can direct them, we can guide them, but we can't, we can't make those decisions for them. It's between, between them and God in their own heart. So for those of you who have kids, for those of you who are teachers, for those of you who have people underneath you in a Christian environment, what are you communicating? I'm fresh off this men's retreat, okay? So I'm going to give you one more illustration from this. Uh, there was a workshop on, on own, your, own Your Parenting. There was another one on Own Your Sport. And this one by Own Your Sport was really interesting. I, I went to it. It was done by the head coach of the Liberty soccer team. He used to coach in the MLS. Uh, MLS, he's a, he's a professional soccer coach, great Christian guy. He, he shared his whole testimony. There was tons of great content in this. But he pointed out this one piece. He's like, if you're a parent and your kid is in a sport, what are you communicating to them? It's very easy for parents to fall into this trap of their kid's performance makes them happy, right? So if your kid performs well, it's like, yeah, it's great. Like, oh, yeah, you're good. But what your kid hears from this is when you, you only praise them when they really do really good and you never say anything or you say something negative when they do something wrong, your kid gets this idea that, oh, wow, like, to please my parents, my parents will love me more if I perform better on the field or on the court. That's incredibly destructive, right? Think about how God the Father works with us, his, his children, right? He knows we're going to make mistakes. He expects us to make mistakes down here. He knows it's going to happen. He loves us anyway. Our performance does not determine how much he loves us. Our performance has nothing to do with it. So he took this parallel even to the sports analogy, like as a parent with your child, make sure they know you love them no matter what they do, no matter how well they sing, no matter how well they dance, no matter how well they throw the ball around. You love them. And he said, just, just think of it this way, like teach them, work hard, have fun, and do your best. If you're working hard, having fun, and doing your best, we're pleased. If you're not doing that, then let's have a conversation about that because that's, that's a deeper issue than just sports, right? That goes to your heart. So this same thing applies when we're talking about investing in other people. How are you communicating to them? When you're, when you're interacting with others, do you know, do they know that you love them by what you say? Or is it all performance-based? You didn't do this. You should have done that. Because then you're creating this environment where it's not based off of true love it's based off of performance and that messes with people if you communicate are you communicating that God is love or that God is angry now God judges sin God is angry with the wicked every day we see that in scripture God also loves the unrighteous so are you communicating the freedom that he gives us or is it all straight-laced behavior modification? Turn over to Ephesians 4 really quick with me. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. I feel led to uh, show you this passage that fits right in here since I'm saying a lot based off of these, this one phrase. <laughs> this is coming from scripture though. Uh, verse 25, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's our communication right there. That's what it should be like. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we don't communicate in love, when we use words that tear down, not build up, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. You see that right there? Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's God's word right there. So this is where you have to harness your inner critic and your perfectionism and you have to trust God. You know what? I can point that person in the right direction. I can share what Jesus has done in my life. I can give them truth in love. At the end of the day, they have to make their own decision and the Holy Spirit has to convict and lead them as well. I cannot force them to do what I want them to do. Fan the flame, don't quench the spirit. And now this flows further into that second, that second way that we can quench the spirit. Paul has more to say about the denial of the spiritual gifts when he says, number two, despise not prophecies. Whew, we got a lot more to cover here. We have a lot more to cover. Um, here's the question. Prophecy is clearly something that I'm not supposed to despise. But why would Paul even say that? Why, why is he saying that? Well, I already touched on it, right? I kind of already explained to you why people can despise prophecy. Um, and really, to understand this fully, though, we need to define prophecy, right? Let's do that really quick, as quick as we can. The best way to define prophecy in the New Testament is the chapter that Paul wrote on prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14. Because this is a gift of the Spirit, we aren't to quench it, but... Paul is led by the Spirit right now to say, don't despise it. So just the simple fact that he's saying to the church, don't despise this, means it's something that can get out of line, out of track, where people get a bad taste in their mouth about it. That's the logical deduction that I have. That should cue you in that we're talking about something that is a little more complicated than simply the prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke for God. They delivered messages to the people, thus says the Lord. That's pretty cut and dry, right? There's no confusion about that. In 1 Corinthians 14, it's very, a very helpful passage on this topic. And uh, just go ahead and read, let's read the first five verses with me here. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more... To prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that church may be built up. It's a very long chapter. We're not going to cover every verse in this chapter. But what do we see here? Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit that you should earnestly desire. It also teaches that the church body, in this context, prophecy is greater than tongues because while tongues can edify you individually in your personal relationship with God, Prophecy will build up the church as a church body. And as this chapter goes along, Paul does give the guidelines. As I mentioned earlier, the Corinthian church was going way too far with this. There was a lot of pride and there was abuse in the church gathering. They were using these gifts in an unbalanced way for their own self-glory. So Paul concludes this chapter by saying all things should be done decently and in order. If someone feels led to speak in tongues, there should be two or three at the most and only one at a time with an interpreter. If you're not doing it that way, you're going to create problems. He also lays out the guideline for public prophecy. And the goal, again, is obvious. It's to build up the church. 
If it's not building up the church, you're not doing it the right way. And he lays out that prophecy should be received. If it's a public word of prophecy, it should be weighed by the elders, the leaders of the church. And if it's directed for the individual, right here, Paul is telling you again, it needs to be tested. It's right there every time you see it. So prophecy in the New Testament church is not foretelling of the future. And I could give you a bunch of proof texts on that. I'm not going to turn this into a seminary class, okay? But it's not foretelling the future. It's not powerful preaching either. It's just simply not that. It's not the same thing. Caruso is proclaiming with authority. It's heralding the message of the king. It's a bold declaration. On the other hand, you have prophecy in a completely different light throughout the New Testament. Also, prophecy, this is a key, it has less authority than Scripture. It's not the same thing. The Old Testament prophets were, thus says the Lord, and you were expected to obey them. In the New Testament, that role is not found in the gift of prophet. Instead, it's given to the role of the apostle. And I'm not going to go through every systematic passage in the New Testament on this today, but the apostles give revelation from God, and it stops there. And when they want to establish their credibility, they play the apostle card and nothing else. The Greek word prophetes in the first century did not mean one who speaks God's very words. Rather, it had the broader meaning of the one who speaks on the basis of some external influence. You see this in Titus 1.12. Your own prophets have said, Acts 21. The disciples at Tyre prophesied to Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And you remember what Paul did? He did it anyway. <laughs> Agabus prophesied that the Jews would bound him and deliver him to the Gentiles. It was partially true, but it wasn't totally accurate. The Jews tried to kill him, but the Romans ended up escorting him to Rome. So we have prophecy in the New Testament, not as something that is definitive. It's not preaching. It's something where a person who loves the Lord, a, a believer, is led of the Spirit to say something. At the same time, it may not be 100% accurate. That's what prophecy is. It's when the Lord leads you, the Spirit leads you and guides you to say something. You weren't even planning on saying it, maybe to upbuild that person. And now it's up to you who received that to actually weigh that and test that. Is this lining up to scripture? Let me talk to a few other people about this. Anthony Thistleton is a New Testament scholar who wrote one of the very best commentaries on 1 Corinthians. And here's how he defined prophecy. I'm gonna read it to you. Prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, communities, and situations with the ability to address these things with a God-given utterance or longer discourse leading to challenge or comfort, judgment or consolation, but ultimately building up the addressees. While the speaker believes that such utterances or discourses come from the Holy Spirit, mistakes can be made, and since believers, including ministers or prophets, remain humanly fallible, claims to prophecy must be weighed and tested. Anthony Thistleton. I like that a lot. It's not perfect in my opinion. We have to remember that's coming from a man, uh, a fallible man. So when we focus on scripture, we do have to test that definition, right? I'll give you another, another uh, definition, another quote by Wayne Grudem. He gives prophecy a very simple definition. Telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. He simplifies it there for us. And we don't have a verse in the Bible that says, here it is, prophecy is this, fill in the blank. But based on everything we just read, it's pretty easy to piece this together. And I love how John Piper describes it. The New Testament gift of prophecy is a regulated message or report in human words, usually made to the gathered believers based on a spontaneous personal revelation from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of edification, encouragement, consolation, conviction, or guidance, but not necessarily free from a mixture of human error and thus needing the assessment on the basis of apostolic, biblical teaching and mature, mature spiritual wisdom. I have seen so many people in our church say a word of prophecy that builds other people up. I see it in life groups. I see it in the lobby. I see it all the time where, where people are led to say something that builds up the other person. The spirit leads them to share truth. Is it always 100% of the time, 100% accurate in all situations? Of course not. 
But the, the Holy Spirit is leading that person to build up someone else with the words they say. We don't need to be afraid of that or scared of that. We need to grow into that. We really do. We need to embrace it. 1 Corinthians 14 is not a scary, hazy chapter of the New Testament. Now, the reason this gift can be despised is it can be used the wrong way. God told me to tell you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why did you have to insert yourself into that whole phrase, right? Like, can't you just say what God led you to say, right? Because as soon as you insert yourself into there, <laughs> into that conversation, now you've kind of elevated yourself as the person who's speaking for God. It's kind of distorting the message a little bit. Or it really, it, it, not always, but it can. Again, prophecy, we're not talking about predicting the future here. <laughs> You're going to have a baby with brown hair and blue eyes. How is that a building the church? Like, like what, what's your, what is your point here? Why are you getting that specific? Is that edifying me, really? Again, don't elevate yourself. Don't look down on others. Some Christians have this gift. Some others don't. This is not a first-class kind of thing. This isn't a JV, varsity, Christianity thing. And if you overemphasize it, it can go really bad. Other people start trying to force it who aren't really even led of the Spirit because they're in this environment where somebody prophesied and now, oh, I have to, I have to be spiritual too. I got to get in on this. They force it. Other people don't feel it at all and they're like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> you see how that can create an unhealthy environment? It, it really can. This is why every good gift has to stay balanced. And if we keep it balanced and we exercise it the right way, in the right time, with the right motives, people are built up. Jesus Christ is exalted. So don't show off. We don't, we don't elevate ourselves with this. We don't look down on others who aren't doing the same thing we're doing. We don't just go to church to be fed either. We also show up to church, the gathered body, to use our spiritual gifts to build up one another. It's very important that we do that. So don't quench the spirit. Speak truth and love and you will build up. Now, we just spent a lot of time on this. It was very important. It's, it was in the text. It's something to teach on. Like We need clarity on that. It hasn't always been taught clearly in churches. But that naturally leads us to the third point. I'm not going to take as much time on this one. Number three, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. It's what we've been talking about, right? If someone speaks a word to you and they challenge you and they point you to scripture, they give you advice, take it to the Lord. It's not the same as gospel truth. I mean, maybe they quoted a verse to you. That's great. That's helpful, right? But listen to others and share what you've been told. That word of prophecy that was intended to strengthen and encourage you, that may be exactly what you needed to hear, but it's not infallible either. Maybe they even shared a verse out of context. That's happened before. So test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Eat the meat and spit out the bones. I've had people prophesy things, say things to me that weren't completely right. I had a friend challenge me to seek reconciliation not, not too long ago, a few months back. I sought to do that, and restoration didn't really come from that. But some other things came out of that, like the Lord opened up more doors and, and, and more knowledge and information came out of the situation, so I'm thankful that person said that to me. It didn't go exactly the way they thought it would or I thought it would, but God still worked in the situation. The thing that you have to remember about prophecy is that it is needed. We need to speak truth into other people's lives, right? We need that. Sometimes God will use you to challenge someone else with the word of truth as the Spirit leads you. So talk to them, but not in a self-glory, not in a self-insertion way that makes people look at you. 
but do it in its proper place. And when you do that and you get out of the way and you let the Holy Spirit take it from there, God is glorified. The church is built up. This couldn't really be more clear. Weigh prophecy, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, then act upon what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. Now, the last piece of this is very interesting. You may think this is a standalone thought, or you may include it in everything that was just said. It's honestly hard to say, but take a look at verse 22 with me, and then you can decide for yourself. Abstain from every form of evil. Some translations may even say abstain from all appearances of evil. But honestly, that phrase can get confusing and taken too far, and it's, it's really not the greatest translation of the original anyway. I think this is a more accurate interpretation. Abstain from every form of evil. All kinds of evil. Now, you could take that at face value, or you could include it in everything that was just said in the previous sentence, right? You could go one of two ways. I'm going to let the Spirit lead you on that. I don't have a strong opinion either way. I'll tell you what I do lean towards. I lean towards this being attached to the context more than it simply being a standalone sentence. To me, it just makes more sense to include this as a punctuation mark of this this last thought. As you weigh what other Christians are speaking to you, don't take it, everything at face value, take it to the Lord, hold fast to what is good, and chuck out everything else that's false. This is where we have to harness our inner critic in the right way, okay? And do you see here that Paul doesn't want you to stay a baby Christian that's just dependent on the bottle constantly? Like, that's not his goal for you. He wants you to develop spiritual maturity where you are now speaking truth and you are building up those around you. He wants you to speak the truth in love. And have your speech seasoned with salt. And to have grace emanating from your life and your conversation. And to do that, we don't just blindly follow people. We're following Jesus Christ. Worship team, you can come up. When people ask my advice, I love having conversations about what the Lord led you, what you're wrestling through. And when people are talking to me about these things, I listen. And as I listen, I'm talking to the Lord and I'm praying silently. And my goal is not to just tell them what I think. It's to point them to Scripture and to encourage them to take it to the Lord and let the Holy Spirit lead them. And if I'm giving advice, I'm going to make sure it's backed up by Scripture. And I'm going to point that out to them. This is what Scripture says here. And I love having these conversations, especially with, with those of you in this church. But my goal and your goal when we have these conversations, church, should always be let's point the person back to Jesus Christ. How is the Spirit leading you? And this has been a very practical message I hope and trust that it has built you up. I hope that you have a greater understanding now of your role and your place in the church body. But we cannot end this specific message, even though those are, that was our text for the day. We can't end this message without looking ahead a little bit till next week, okay? So look at scripture with me. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Who's doing the work here? Who's the source? Where is all of this emanating from? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This all goes back to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, Pray for humility. Get on your knees. Pray for humility. The Lord is the one who will do it. We can't live the Christian life in the church body, on Monday morning at work, in the classroom on Friday when everybody's just done. Like, we cannot live our life for Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit. He is faithful. He will empower you. He will surely do it. We rest on him. Jesus conquered. 
He gives us life. Everything we have is from him. Everything we do is for him. It's all about Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit that, in, that strengthens us, <clears throat> that convicts us, that leads us and guides us. When we have that together, we are unified and we can't be stopped. The, ger- the church is going to take the truth of the gospel, the love that this world desperately needs. And we're going to barricade through and crash through the gates of hell. That's what we're called to do. Would you stand up, church? Let's get serious about living on fire for the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Tap into it. Embrace it. Seek it. And He will surely do it. Let's sing to Him. reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.